13.8 billion years since the formation of the universe, I'm Marsha Jeffries with the top movie headlines. Matt Damon has revealed how he was responsible for his character's famous pseudonym in the Bourne films. Damon was all set to star as amnesiac super spy Jason White, but raised concerns that the titles The White Identity, The White Supremacy and The White Ultimation could be misinterpreted by audiences. The studio agreed and renamed his character Jason Bourne for the versions shown in many northern US states. It may be setting the local box office on fire, but animated film Jellyfish Rock has hit a stumbling block on the eve of its release in China. The Chinese government has demanded the film be re-edited for its citizens, with animators scrambling to make the last-minute alteration. The studio has assured critics that there are no substantive changes to the film, which will be released under its new title, The Cultural Revolution is of Great Benefit to the Proletariat. And finally, the estate of Joseph Campbell has launched a plagiarism lawsuit against all the major film studios. The studios are accused of stealing Campbell's famous hero's journey, for literally every film and television show ever produced since 1949. The estate has tried to launch the suit many times over the years, but were forced to postpone proceedings when every lawyer refused the call. And don't forget to tune in to the premiere of our new review show, Baby Talk. This week, the Critical Tots debate all the new releases, including Todd Phillips' Batman vs. Kramer, the crowd-pleasing dramedy Old Lady Cricket Team, and a pitch-a-pong Wiracetical's golden palm-winning drama, Golden Palm. I can see it. Can't wait for that one. Now let's check in with Werner Herzog in the chopper. The sound of blades is the sound of my thoughts. Only here, in the vast openness of the sky, can I escape the horrible screams that the rest of you call silence. Thanks, Werner. Today's climate is steadily climbing thanks to anthropogenic carbon emissions sparked by the Industrial Revolution in the 1830s. Now it's Bazura time. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the Bazura Project's Radio Free Cinema, brought to you by Village Cinema's new strobe light seating. Enjoy the hottest new releases in the comfort of a recliner with a strobe light embedded in the armrest for some reason. Shannon Marenko and Lee Zachariah getting you ready for the long weekend this Tuesday afternoon. Shannon, how are you going? Going well, thank you. Going good, going strong, going forward, going the distance, going swimmingly, going a little longer than I anticipated, going on and on, going my way, (laughs) going crazy, going too far, going down, going to leave a mark, going nowhere, going to stop. Great stuff. What do we have coming up on the show? Well, today's show is as big as Ben Murr, a little seen 1950s biblical epic about one of the three wise men that, in its time, was as big as Ben Hur. We're going to talk about obsolete home video formats VHSC, CVC, Mini DV, Micro MV, HDV, HD DVD. Unfairly discarded? Or were we just getting sick of acronyms ending in the E sound? We take a close look at synth movie soundtracks, although it would have been better if we had listened to them as well, and we chat with Reginald T. Hopkins, writer, director and star of the exploitation remake of Martin Scorsese's masterpiece Taxi Driver called Blacksy Driver, and his new take on the Australian feral pig classic Razorback called Razor Hog vs. Systemic Racism in a Post-Truth World. 
Plus all the usual segments, Lamer versus Lamer, There Will Be Dud, Little Miss Logline, and of course, the usual segments. So much to get through, no time to waste. What did you get up to this week? Well, I headed out for a marathon with the boys. A movie marathon or a running marathon? I think we both know the answer to that. You know, the boys have a bit of a nerdy streak to them. They're big fans of interconnected universes. So we had an epic night out at the Cinematheque watching, in order, all the films in the Antoine Duanel cinematic universe. Nice. So uh, 400 Blows, Antoine and Colette. Yep, Stolen Kisses, Bread and Board. Love on the Run, Hate on the Fritz. Vietnam Follies, Watership Down. Conquest of the Planet of the Apes. The boys love their French New Wave. So... Vaza drives us all to a taco joint first, because he apparently thinks tacos are French. And then we head to the cinema for a solid 20 hours of Jean-Pierre Liard action. That would have been wild. But here's the thing. Tacos are not enough to sustain you for 20 hours. And a couple of films in, the boys start getting peckish. Were you able to go out for another meal? No, the breaks between the films were only 15 minutes. That's barely enough time to order. That's what I said. So then Vaza walks out and comes back with five boxes. Box? What do you mean, boxes? I mean boxes about this size with open tops, all filled with popcorn. Popcorn? Yeah, the little snack, you know, corn kernels sort of puffed out into these salty little clouds. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. And he gives them to us to eat during the movie. Popcorn to eat during the movie? Yeah, exactly. Where do you get that idea? Well, there was this little kiosk outside the theatre selling it and half the cinema was doing it. Is it some sort of ethnic thing? I don't think so. That's weird. Hmm. What about you? What's the latest? Oh, well, the latest is that, you know, it is a type of tapeworm, but nobody's really sure which one. So all those tests I had last no, month... No, 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 all... no, 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 sorry. Uh, like, what's the latest? What's going on? What have you been up to? Oh, <laughs> sorry. I've got too much information. <laughs> right. So my doctor took my biopsy to the UN. No, 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 no. What's going on with movies? Did you see anything this week? Oh, well, well, yes, I did. I, I did see a very interesting movie this week. Cool. What was it? It was footage of my bowel, and you can clearly see all the worm babies stuck no, together. No, 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 forget it. Let's just start the show. Oh, it was gripping stuff. I give it five out of five pustules. You're listening to the Bazura Project's Radio Free Cinema. Well, Christmas is only 410 days away, so it's time to start thinking about gifts. The gifts... Of presents. And I would argue that shopping for a young film fan is more difficult than it's been in living memory. Once upon a time, a fancy box set or Criterion Blue would be enough to placate the special cinephile in your life. But with physical media on the outs, and even your most obsessive collectors looking to downsize, it's a bit of a minefield. That's true. I recently had to get rid of my Killing Fields-themed minefield. So... What is the solution? Well, I think the obvious answer is to not buy anyone anything. And I disagreed, so I invited our next guest to talk about gift-giving tips. Annie Rashid is the head of marketing at Australia's fastest-growing pop culture merch company. Collectibles, uniforms, novelties, trophies, souvenirs. Annie, welcome. Thanks, guys. It's great to be here. Are you looking forward to Christmas, Annie? I'm Muslim. Oh, sorry. Are you looking forward to Christmas, Muslim? Oh, yes. It's the most lucrative day of the year. Aside from Kenneth Anger's birthday, of course. We always have to put extra staff on for that one. We're so glad you're here because we really need your help. I have no idea what to give people anymore. I've even been struggling with gift cards. I I don't know whether to go Amazon, JB Hi-Fi, the dark web. Yeah, this is a problem that's fairly common. It's because of people like you that we at Collectibles Uniforms Novelties Trophies Souvenirs designed our special holiday gift guide. What I like about your gift guide is that it's not just high-end stuff, you know. I'm sick of being told the only film memorabilia I can buy is a 20-inch ceramic statue of Meryl Streep's character from Sophie's Choice that costs 500 bucks. Ironically, that's an easy choice to make. 
Absolutely. It shouldn't matter whether you're someone who can afford to shell out 500 bucks or a mere 20 bucks a week over 25 consecutive weeks. So you've put together this super useful catalogue which helps you figure out what to give the younger movie maniac. That's right. And we maintain you can't start too young. For the film fan whose fontanelle hasn't quite closed over yet, we've created this adorable plush doll. It's a baby otter with otter theory written on it. Ah, auteur theory. (laughs) Very good, I get it. Yeah, it's cute. Although, do we want to teach kids auteur theory from such a young age? They're supposed to be learning to share, and auteur theory does diminish the role that so many people play in the birth of a film. Also, otters don't work alone. You know, they build those dams. You're thinking of beavers. Yes, sorry, beavers. And so we ask the question, is it one beaver's vision that drives the production, or is it truly an egalitarian system, Marxist in nature? To answer this question, we're joined by environmentalist Dr Norman Gregerson. The urge to build a dam is ingrained, and so beavers will work together with one common goal. So there's no overseer or foreman, sorry, for beaver, directing construction. The beavers typically work as a family. The general template of the dam is an instinctual thing, so there's no need for any real direction. Uh, There is little of the creativity you find in human architecture. So there's no beaver Frank Lloyd Wright or beaver Frank Gehry? Uh, no, I don't believe so. Mm, That makes sense. Beavers are too practical. They wouldn't have any time for functionless forms. That's a disparaging way to describe the pioneering work of 20th century architects. Oh, Gary was a total space waster. He, he designed inefficient corporatist buildings for the ultra-elite that completely failed to fit in with their surroundings. Mm, and that's the question, isn't it? What should the role of architecture be in a modern environment? To help us answer that is architect Valerie Butler. Architecture is meant to inspire. It determines the shape of a city, affects its mood and character. It is the defining form of the world we live in. But we live on a planet crippled by waste. Can we really afford to prioritise beauty over function? The idea that there are areas in which aesthetics should not be considered is to turn life itself into a purely utilitarian pursuit and thus remove the point of existence altogether. Our culture over-prioritises beauty. To deprioritize it in order to combat the greatest existential threat humanity has faced would hardly turn us into some pallid Soviet dystopia. Oh, would you make this case to a painter? To an actor whose very living depends on the audience wanting to bang them? But do actors feel the same way? Robert Pattinson is the star of Twilight, Harry Potter and the historical drama The King. Robert, do you feel the bangability aspect of acting is... What? The King's depiction of the Battle of Agincourt was propagandistic francophobia that glossed over England's bloodthirsty brutality. Christopher Stenz is Professor of European History at the University of Melbourne. Professor, does the audience want to bang Robert Pattinson? I'll say he was easily the sexiest part of the rover. Coming up on the show, we speak to Roger Moore, Guy Pearce and Neil Gaiman about the advantages of having homoerotic names. We look at why old Italian films passive-aggressively rated themselves as fine. And Zack Snyder tells us why his upcoming biopic of Martin Luther King Jr. will open with the murder of Bruce Wayne's parents. You're listening to Radio Free Cinema. Well, we enjoyed almost speaking to Annie Rashid from Collectibles, Uniforms, Novelties, Trophies, Souvenirs so much, we decided to have her back on for another segment after she reminded us that it was a sponsored piece and we'd be sued for breach of contract if we didn't. Our lawyers are standing by. Great. So... Back to film merch gift ideas, my nieces and nephews are getting to that age where they're finding Quentin Tarantino and Wes Anderson films a little bit passe and derivative. What age is that? Seven. Well, we get a lot of demand from the sophisticated cinephilic second grader demographic for merchandise that covers more serious auteurs like, say, Barbe Schroeder. And so we've created this plastic doll that's especially popular with girls. We call it simply Barbe. 
<laughs> That's great. Although it does play into the stereotype that all girls are automatically into classic Barbe. My niece appreciates his late French New Wave 1970s output, but much prefers his Hollywood phase. She thinks his European background gave his American films a much-needed edge. Kids. We have anticipated that, so we've created this fun post-Hollywood variation figure, Malibu Barbe. Oh, he comes with a little car. Ah, uh, yes. That's a replica of a vehicle he sold when he played a car salesman in Jean-Luc Godard's 1963 drama Le Carabiniers. It's a fun accessory that's a mere $59.99. Ah, and who's this handsome fellow he's with? That's Ken Loach. He comes with a union card and a trained kestrel. I'm assuming he's also very expensive? You'd think so, but the government provides a subsidy for this doll so all kids can have one, regardless of socioeconomic background. Well, I for one can't wait for my nieces and nephews to play with Ken and Barbe. They can have all sorts of adventures, going to the Cannes Film Festival, the Berlin Film Festival, the Venice Film Festival... The Oscars. (laughs) Fat chance. Oh, this one looks like fun. What is it? That's a mind puzzle called the Kubrick's Rube. Each tile has the face of a beloved Rube from a Stanley Kubrick film. There's Private Pile from Full Metal Jacket, Major Kong from Doctor Strangelove, Lolita's Mum. So sad. Then if you sort of twist the blocks so they form the right pattern, they eventually form a black monolith that curses the user with terrible knowledge and enlightenment. My God. It's full of stars. Toys and dolls are fine for Lee's family, but my friend's kids need something a bit more high-tech. Then they're going to love our new collaboration with Nintendo. We've been working with their most expendable designers to combine the classic 16-bit video game with Italian horror. Ooh, sounds fun. What's that called? Super Mario Barvis. It's a totally addictive game. The goal is to rescue the princess, then burn her alive for being a witch. Oh, that one is really hard. I always need my brother to help me get past the Planet of the Vampires level. It's almost as popular as the number one game in our catalogue, Madden NFL. Madden NFL. That sounds interesting. What's that about? You play eccentric Winnipeg filmmaker Guy Madden and navigate his career as he's drafted into the NFL, or National Filmmaking League. Can you make it to the top of Canada's independent film scene without being violently tackled by Atom Egoyan, Sarah Polly or Xavier Dolan? It's the first game officially endorsed by the Toronto Film Festival and we guarantee literally hours of installation time. Oh, fun. Do you have any other games in development? We have a huge range of titles on the way, like Alan J. Pacman, Donkey Kong Ichikawa, Silent George Roy Hill, Saul Bass Effect, Redford Dead Redemption and Kevin Kleincraft. Wow, if I didn't know any better, I'd swear those were all laboured puns instead of actual video games. (laughs) We get that a lot. So some of these games are a little out of my price range of $4 per kid. What do you have that's unique but also cheap as piss? A lot of parents want to raise cinephiles but are worried about too much screen time. So we've looked at ways to get them into reading and we believe the best gateway is novelisations. Oh, I remember those. Back when I was a kid, before my family had a DVD player or even a TV, novelizations were the only way to revisit films like Fritz the Cat or Cannibal Holocaust. Well, we're thrilled to announce we've acquired the reprint rights to a novelization of It's a Wonderful Life by Ayn Rand. That one's called Mr. Potter, and it follows the adventures of a self-made business icon who must protect his wealth from a nepotistic loan shark that inherited a failing business from his father. Socialists make me so angry! 
And finally, I notice you're moving into the food market with what looks like an energy drink for kids. Yes, we've got this new chocolate malt powder called Milosh, inspired by the films of Milosh Foreman. You've got to be made of Milosh. And how does this differ from the drink Milo, of which this is a clear trademark infringement? Well, like the films of Milosh Foreman, our product is very gritty and really not syrupy at all, although it is 98% sugar. Right. So everybody, make sure you pick up a tin of Milosh Foreman. And girls, you can pick up a tin of Milos for women. It's basically the same product, except it has a pink label. Well, we love these products and recommend you stop by collectibles, uniforms, novelties, trophies, souvenirs for all your gift needs. And be sure to use the promo code Radio Free Cinema for a 10% surcharge on all your purchases. Annie Rashid, thanks for stopping by. Anytime. Sorry, do you still need me? No, Professor. Oh, cool. I'm going to go see if I can catch up with Pattinson. Radio Free Cinema. Available now from collectibles, uniforms, novelties, trophies, souvenirs. It's the album for anyone who's ever wanted to celebrate their favourite filmmaker through the medium of rock. Some of the biggest recording artists of all time pay tribute to their best-loved directors. There's nobody who loves neo-realist Vittoria De Sica more than legendary rockers The Who. There's no clear and present danger in reliving the time the godfather of soul, James Brown, imagined what it was like to be Australian director Philip Noyce. Wow! I'm Phil Noyce. Like sugar in spice. I'm Phil Noyce. And you'll love the sounds of Heartland rocker John Cougar Mellencamp, just as much as he loves the iconic figure of new German cinema Werner Herzog. Discover the admiration that Canadian synth-pop group Men Without Hats has for independent filmmaking brothers Josh and Benny Safdie. Safdie dance, oh well the Safdie dance, oh yeah the Safdie dance. You won't believe your ears when Simon and Garfunkel reunite after discovering a shared affection for Danish Dogma 95 co-founder Thomas Vinderberg. Don't look around. And don't question the internal logic of Amy Winehouse paying tribute to Argentine French bad boy Gaspar Noé. They try to make me pick a movie, and I'm like, no way, no way, no. If you thought hip-hop megastar Jay-Z wasn't preoccupied with comedic German director Ernst Lubitsch, then we have the track for you. If you haven't filmed problems, I feel bad for you, son. I got 99 problems, but Lubitsch ain't one. Meanwhile, Detroit rapper Eminem isn't shy to express his proclivity for explosion enthusiast Michael Bay. Just a bunch of gibberish motherfuckers act like they forgot about Bay. Then, as if all that wasn't enough, Justin Bieber gives us his tribute to Mexico's Alejandro Gonzalez Inorito. Inorito. 
And finally, Broadway star Edina Menzel performs the only known musical tribute to unstoppable South Korean master Bong Joon-ho. Bong Joon-ho! All this and more in the new album, You Ought to Know. Out now. You're listening to Radio Free Cinema. Now, Shannon, I believe you took a trip recently. Yes, I've just returned from a whirlwind visit to the north of Europe, approximately 55,500 kilometres northwest of where we are right now. I have to say, I was absolutely dripping with jealousy looking at all of the holiday snaps you posted on LinkedIn. But you weren't exactly there on a holiday, were you? No, there was a very important right-offable purpose behind my trip, because I've long been fascinated with the art of accents. How actors prepare, how they manage to transform and then maintain their voices. And my curiosity took me to the world's most prestigious accent school, which just happens to be located in Europe. Roll tape. I've come to the Isle of Glyph in the middle of the Baltic Sea. Apparently you can draw a direct line from this island to ten different countries, each with their own distinct languages, dialects and accents. It's why this was the location chosen for the world's most prestigious accent and voice coaching academy, Tamba Heard. All the movie stars, from Tom Cruise to Penelope Cruz to Terry Cruz, come here to master the most difficult of accents. Voices in real life do not sound the same as on the movies. If you see two people sit next to each other, they look normal. But put it on camera and, oh, suddenly it is wrong. They look far apart. They look like they are not friends. It is the same with the voice. You must do the accent for the camera, not necessarily for the reality. Tilda Umlot is the man behind the academy and has been called the world's foremost expert in accent and dialect training. Before I started in the business, accents were very much a mixed bag. Most actors would do a basic approximation of the accent they were attempting to imitate. There was no mind to accuracy, very little attention to detail. How did you get into cinema? I graduated from finishing school, which was a school for to master the Finnish accent, and I soon realized that cinema needed a proper accent coach after seeing Dick Van Dyke in Mary Poppins. The accent he used was just awful, insincere, inconsistent, comically bad. So I convinced the studio to reshoot all of his scenes with me coaching him, and I believe the results speak for themselves. I shudder to think what would have happened to his reputation if they'd released the original takes. Tilda's unconventional technique involves attempting to undo thousands of years of evolution, breaking the vocal habits of students down to primal grunts and screams until they're reduced to only making noises that would have once been made by their cavemen forebears. He's about to introduce the technique to this student from Wales. Okay, now let's forget the Welsh and try some primal grunts. More primitive. You are scared of fire. A mammoth has just eaten your caveman wife. You will not live past 30. You do Austin Powers impressions. Avatar is your favorite film. Good, good. Now, class, I want to hear what it would sound like if 13 early Homo sapiens, yet to develop complex speech patterns, 
all employed basic verbal modality to perform the Alec Baldwin speech from the Glengarry Glen Ross. <laughs> <laughs> These feel like very unorthodox techniques. Uh, but you cannot argue with the results. Look at Antonio Banderas. Antonio was just a struggling actor from Invercargill, New Zealand when he came to me. It is my technique that turned him into the versatile transglobal chameleon you see today. Was that your proudest achievement? No. My proudest achievement was changing Hollywood thinking regarding the distinction between the Scottish and the Irish. Could they not tell the difference? Uh, No, they thought there was one. I told them there is no substantive difference between the Scots and the Irish. They're basically identical. And so, thanks to me, Sian Connery played Irish in The Untouchables, Billy Connolly was a Mick in The Last Samurai, and Gerard Butler went turf cutter in P.S. I Love You. Yes, you worked with Connery a lot, didn't you? Oh, Sian and I had a great... Great working relationship. I helped craft his Spanish accent for Highlander, his Moroccan accent for The Wind and the Lion, and his Russian accent for The Hunt for Red Octobers. We were working closely on his American accent when he was up for the lead in Pretty Woman, but the studio decided to give the role to Julia Roberts. Thanks to Tilda's popularity, he is in constant demand from Hollywood's hottest stars. Uh, No, 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 Scarlet. You must try it again. If you want to convince the audience you are a Japanese, you must master the accent. Otherwise, it may seem insensitive. But Tilda's journey has had rough patches. It is true. I was fired from Mitchell Black after the first days of shooting. I had spent months working with Brad Pitt on his Jamaican patois, which Brad and I felt would give his character an interesting depth. But as soon as the studio saw the rushes from the shoot, I was fired and they made Brad revert to his normal accent for the remainder of the production. But they still left the Jamaican scene in the film and it is clearly the best part. Have you ever had an actor completely fail at an accent? Oh yes, this is sadly common. I worked on the original X-Men and it became clear to me that Halle Berry was struggling with the African accent. At what point in the process did you realise that? Oh, many weeks after the film's release. But I was able to fix it in the subsequent films by telling her to stop gradually over the course of the franchise. It is the same technique I used on Elizabeth Olsen in the Avengers films. Just an absurd and unconvincing accent. The corridors of his studio are lined with movie posters, signed by some of his most grateful students. There's Leonardo DiCaprio's signature on Blood Diamond. Keanu Reeves has written a lovely message on the Dracula poster. Here's Don Cheadle on Ocean's Eleven. Quentin Tarantino on Django Unchained. And right at the end here, K-19 The Widowmaker, Dos Vidania. Love from Harrison. All right, Tilda. Let's put your skills to the test. Pretend I'm one of your actors. We're on set. I'm freaking out because my accent isn't working. I'm one minute away from my first take. What do you do? Okay. I have a quick, superficial version of my course for emergencies only, in which I perform the dialogue, and then you parrot it back to me. I call this imitable vowel syndrome. Now, repeat after me. The baguette was stolen by the man. The baguette No, no, the, the baguette. The the baguette was stolen by the mime. Uh, ba should be ba. Ba is a question. Ba. Ba? Ba. Ba, yes. Ba. 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 The mime. Mam. 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 Yes, now together. The baguette was stolen by the mime. Yes. There you go. A perfect Nelson Mandela.
Oh, that was fascinating. So many interesting things about accent training that I never would have known or believed. Yes, it was really an eye-opening time. Tilda's a fascinating bloke. He's definitely come a long way since his childhood in Alice Springs. The Bazura Project's Radio Free Cinema. Well, we are out on the street today asking you the important movie questions. You're at home on a Saturday night and your phone starts buzzing. Chris Evans, Chris Hemsworth, Chris Pine and Chris Pratt are all asking you out to dinner. What do you say? There's there's so many options to choose from. Uh, I prefer the original. I've always liked Greg Kinnear. Just so long as there's plenty of full frontal nudity. I'm sorry, can you repeat the question? Radio Free Cinema. So, I was up late the other night, doing what I'm usually doing at 3am, drinking Singani 63, watching that Independence Day sequel on cable, and just thinking about all the choices, all the decisions that had led me to this point. Oh yeah, Independence Day resurgence. Oh yeah, great film. And I guess the movie channel I was watching was doing a run of science fiction sequels, because as soon as Resurgence finished, they followed it up with Men in Black International. Oh, two classics in a row. What fortune. And as I was watching Chris Hemsworth do fights with CGI aliens, I, I began to notice a very odd connection between the two films. A connection between Independence Day Resurgence and Men in Black International. Yeah. Can you spot it? Oh, okay. Uh, Well, they're both 21st century sequels slash reboots to classic 1990s sci-fi blockbusters. Right. Oh, the originals both starred Will Smith. Yep. uh, But he didn't appear in either of these sequels. uh, And both films instead had a Hemsworth in there. Correct. I mean, it's weird, isn't it? Liam in Independence Day, Chris in Men in Black. You know what they should do? They should totally go for the trifecta. What do you mean? Well, that's only two out of three Hemsworth brothers. And there are heaps of Will Smith films from the 90s that could easily get a rebooty sequel. Hmm. Yeah, true. Oh, Luke should definitely do one. Yeah. Oh, imagine if he does. <laughs> yeah. Or, or imagine if he's actually already made one in secret. <laughs> yeah. And like, what if it was finished and there was a trailer for it? Where are you going with this? And imagine if we had the exclusive first play rights to it. Oh. Hang on, what's happening? Now's Mayor, I tell you, this bowling alley is the heart of this town. It's a symbol for hope. If we lose it, we lose everything. Well, as the most successful businessman in the state, I'll make you a bet. If you can find someone who can beat me at ten-pin bowls... I'll give up my plans to turn the alley into a chemical slum. There's only one man who could possibly do it. But he'd never agree. Now I'm looking for a man called Buddy. I am the mayor. Who's asking? Son, I know you think you're past it. But you're the only man in all of Georgia who can win this thing. Your town's counting on you. Look, I'm not the champion I used to be. I mean, can't you tell? I'm an alcoholic now. He's got a stubble. His shirt's all askew and untucked. He's got no chance at redemption. Listen, buddy. What's it going to take to get those fingers back in a ball? Come on, buddy. You can do it. There's got to be some of that magic left. Gosh darn it. Oh, nearly had that one. Hey, who's out there? Oh, sorry to alarm you. My name's Prentice. Prentice Juna. Well, what are you doing standing in the middle of a bowling lane? You know, I could have killed you. I've been watching you throw nothing but gutter balls for the last hour. Where I figured it, middle of the lane was the safest place to be. 
You know, I never had no bowling caddy before. Well, maybe that's why you can't hit those pins. Why would somebody like you help somebody like me? I know what it's like to be down and out. My daddy was a golfer who got help from a mystical caddy when he needed it. Well, I know how that goes. My daddy was a mystical caddy who helped the golfer when he needed it. Sounds like we're both right where we need to be. Well, well, well. I thought this was a bowling alley for the best and the brightest. Didn't know we were letting washed up losers in. Evening, Wally. You got no business competing in this bowling competition, you hear? You best stay in your lane. Seems to me another fellow the name of Hitler wanted America to stay in its lane. Don't recall that working out too well for him. And who might you be, friend? I'm just a man who likes to watch bowling. And you take care. On July 10. Well, that's the thing about life, buddy. I mean, sometimes you don't feel like you fit in this world. But your fingers slide into those holes and you know there's a place for you. Hope will strike. You see, that's the thing about 10-pin bowling. It's 10 pins against one ball. You're outnumbered. But still, you roll. Luke Hemsworth. Yeah, that's the thing about being in the gutter. You always get a second chance. Christopher Kirby. I spent my whole damn life feeling like the pins. Now it's time to feel like a ball. The legend of Bagger Vance. Retribution. Look, everything's hanging on this next frame. You know, I, I could really use one of them folksy aphorisms if you got one to hand. Well, that's the thing about folksy aphorisms. They never... I forget it. The Bazura Project's Radio Free Cinema. Now to scores. They're not just a way of telling which sporting team is ahead of the other, nor are they simply another word for describing a large number of something. Or a grievance, like, I'm going to settle a score with you. Oh, good one. And also doing a drug deal, like, I need to score some marijuana plants, please. Also scoring with a chick. And it can also mean a notch or line scratched into a surface. Really? Never heard that one before. Ah, well, you learn something new every day. But it's also the music that goes under a film. And if you like music that goes under films, you'll really like this next segment. Because we're about to premiere the new track from the upcoming Hungarian film, The Waters of Balaton. That's right. And here to introduce it to us is the composer of the piece, Mate Lantos. It's great to have you here, mate. Mate. Yes. As Lee cues up the track, could you talk us through what audiences will be seeing when they hear this piece? It is for a very dramatic scene in which a glass of water evaporates in its entirety in real time. And what was your aim with the music? Were you hoping to make the scene a bit more interesting? No, not at all. I wished to capture the gradient of mortality, make the audience feel their life slipping away second by second. I was uh, flipping through your biography, and I understand you studied in a glass house. What does the humidity do for your process? No, I, I studied under Philip Glass, at his house. Oh, right. Sorry, all of my questions are about humidity and plants. Now, mate. Mate. Right. Your style of music is very Brechtian. You like discordant sounds that serve to remind the audience they are watching a film, preventing them from suspending their disbelief and becoming too caught up in what's happening on screen. Film is fakery. It is, in fact, deceitful if you allow the audience to believe that it is reality. And just hypothetically, what type of plant inspires you? Pass. Passe. What? All right, let's have a listen. This is a track from the film The Waters of Balaton. <clears throat> have we hit play? 
not... Guys, I don't think we're getting... Oh, sorry. Okay, here we go. Has it stopped? No. Nope. There it is. Shh. Sorry. Well, that was wonderful. That was the new score. Oh, never mind. Oh, it's okay. I'm just doing coffee orders. What would you like? Nothing. Are you sure? This piece has oh, 11 minutes left on it. Actually, it's closer to 20. It's split over two tracks for some reason. Which coffee place are you going to? Oh, just the one downstairs. Oh, okay. Well, it's no good. Uh, the one on the corner has bagels. I could really go a bagel. Yeah, I can go to that one. Mate, you're absolutely sure? Yes. Not even a little protein ball? The, the protein balls there are actually great. No. Uh, just get him one anyway. I'll eat it if he doesn't. And get him a coffee. The coffee there is really good. Okay, so tea for me, cappuccino for Lee, bagel, protein ball, and a coffee for old mate. Sorry, old day mate. Should I take my pass? Actually, I have my hands full. You'll have to buzz me back in. Sure. Back in a tick. So, doesn't humidity stop the piano being in tune? Do you mind? I didn't mean because I still thought you wrote in a glass house. I just mean in general. It's, it's a general question about humidity and pianos. Please have some respect for my work. What if I only talk in between the notes? Ah, see, that timed out perfectly. I have never been treated this way in fi- Ah, ah, see, you talked over it. Who's being disrespectful now? Oh. Hello? No, 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 not, not a soy cap, a strong cap. Well, how many shots do they usually do? Oh, yeah, that's fine. Three will probably keep me up all night anyway. He, he looks pretty mad. Okay, love you too. I once went in a greenhouse. Well, it was a butterfly house, so it was more a lepidopterarium. Still humid as hell. And I, I don't mind humidity if it's temporary, but if the weather outside is humid, it really bothers me. It's, it's almost like I can tolerate it more when my brain knows I can leave it any time I want. Is, isn't that odd? I, I know why you're looking at me like that, and no, I'm not bringing this up because of the glass house thing, but because you wrote a score for the film Butterflies in Budapest, a score that Bellatar found so boring, he allegedly abandoned the film and destroyed all prints, so, so that's what made me think of that. But, but this is good. This music. 
a little samey, but hey, that's what they say about modern music. It's, it's what the kids are into. You could be a pop star. <laughs> uh. Oh, I like that. That's a bit different. Is that a synth? No, that's Shannon at the door. Hang on, I'll, I'll buzz him in. Have you got it? Do it for longer. I couldn't get the handle in time. Okay. Sorry. He's probably inside now, but I'll just keep it going just to be on the safe side. Oh, here he is. Sorry about that. <clears throat> it's a bit of a cue. <clears throat> Are we still on the air? Ah, there we go. Okay, uh, cappuccino for you, tea for me, latte for matte. Oh, they didn't have poppy seed, uh, so I got you a sesame. Oh, no, no, that's great. And cream cheese, perfect. And a protein bowl for our guest. No, thank you. Are you sure? You look a bit hangry. A hangry Hungarian. <laughs> you feel different if you smell it. Here, I'll hold it directly under your nose. No? All right, more for me, I guess. Wasn't this the bit you were playing before I left? No, 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 no. Oh, hang on, yes. Oh, shit, the CD player's acting up again. Just been playing the first few seconds on loop this whole time. Should we try it again? Yeah, why not? We can just bump the next segment. Cool, I'll call Meryl Streep's people and see if she can come in tomorrow instead. Enough! Goodbye! Bye, mate. What a nice man. Oh, I didn't even get to ask him about polyethylene film versus Dutch light. What? Oh, they're types of glass houses. I'm trying to grow some marijuana plants. Okay, this song is kind of growing on me. You're listening to Radio Free Cinema. was The Rummer Dance-Off from the 1982 musical The Dancingest Mosque in Texas. Such a distinctive number with stars Beverly D'Angelo and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar from an era in which audiences were really turning off the studio musical, thanks in no small part to this film. But never mind that, because now it's time for Movie Mailbag. This is the Zodiac speaking. I'm back with you. Tell Herb Kane I am here. I have always been here. That city pig Toski is good, but I am smarter and better. He will get tired, then leave me alone. I'm waiting for a good movie about me. Who will play me? I'm now in control of all things. Let's check in with our producer, Faith. Faith, what has the mailbag brought us today? We've received a very interesting question from an Alfred Kralik, who writes in to ask, which is your favourite version of Blade Runner? Mmm, very, very good question. This is an issue that divides a lot of cinephiles because that film has been re-edited and re-released so many times. And I know people who swear by the original, who think that the studio-mandated narration from Deckard is a throwback to the gumshoe detective films of the 40s and 50s. For other people, it's the so-called director's cut from 1992, which removes the happy ending. And I know at least one person who adores the 2007 final cut, which was overseen by Ridley Scott. And then there are people who prefer the international cut, the work print, and even the airline version. But I have to say, my personal favourite version is the associate producer's cut. Not the 1996 domestic one, but the 98 version released exclusively in parts of Southeast Asia. Really? Why that one? 
Oh, so many reasons. I love the bit in the final big fight scene when Deckard realises that the only way for him to not fall off the building and then defeat Roy Batty is to run along the edge of a massive blade, and you see the realisation slowly dawn on him. Is that the big toy blade that we see J.F. Sebastian designing? No, no, you're thinking of the 1997 Laserdisc Omnibus release. Uh, the 98 blade is part of a giant billboard for Wayland yutani steak knives. Ah, yes. Lovely little nod there for those who are paying attention. But ultimately, it's my favourite version because of the ending, where the geisha in that electronic ad turns to Deckard and says, You, Deckard, are a replicant. I feel it answers some important questions without getting rid of the subtleties. See, I feel like that was a step down from the 1985 family-friendly edit, where he and Rachel ride the unicorn after Edward James almost takes them to the unicorn enclosure and tells them unicorns can only be ridden by replicants. Nah, too ambiguous. So what's your favourite? I would go with the 2002 Redux. The scene in the French plantation is amazing. Really adds so much to the film. You're listening to Radio Free Cinema. And that's it for this week's show. But before we go, did you pick the obscure movie quote from earlier in the program? Here it is once more. According to my calculations, such is life. And that was the titular character from the Aussie comedy classic, The Adventures of Nerd Kelly. Oh, they don't make him like that anymore especially after all those petitions. Don't forget, next week we'll be chatting to the women who inspired the documentary Yoga Teachers Attracted to Radio Hosts, but we should be done with that before we're due on air. So until then, please remain in a dissociative fugue state until our return. Bye.